0: Hello and welcome everybody to this really special event which 5x15 is holding, talking today to Richard Powers. Richard is the author of his last two quite monumental books, The Overstory and Bewilderment, which is here behind me and he's in the UK to do a publicity tour for Bewilderment and I couldn't be more happy that he's agreed to give us an hour of his time. Bewilderment is on the shortlist for this year's Booker Prize. It's an extraordinary story about a father and a son, about living in the old, the smoky mountains, the Appalachians, about nature, about science, uh, about what's out there in the cosmos. Indeed, many, many things that touch on the scientific, but at the heart, it's an also hugely human story about a father's overwhelming love for his child. And we will come on to talk about this as the conversation progresses, but Richard, really came to my attention, and I think a lot of people's attention, with his awe-inspiring book, The Overstory, which went on to win the American Pulitzer Prize. Now, this is a story about trees. And you could say that it's quite difficult to think of how you make an absolutely gripping story about trees, but this book is gripping. The trees become human, trees become full of life. Mm. Uh, It is a wonder, Richard, that book, as indeed is bewilderment. Thank you and welcome to Five by 15. And can you start by telling me and telling us, how did you, after writing a book of such enormousness as The Overstory, you must have a been exhausted and probably quite overwhelmed. How did you then set out to do Bewilderment?
1: I think exhausted was, uh, is a good word for how I felt at the end of the you know, more or less six years that it took me to put that book together. It's a v- it was a very long book, uh, close to 600 pages. It had um, a large cast, you know, mm. n- nine or more principal characters. It was written in a variety of literary styles. It unfolded over a long period of time, centuries if you count the backstories. And at the end of it, I mean, it wasn't just exhaustion. It was this feeling that I had somehow found my way toward what it was that I needed to say as a writer. After uh, 12 books and 35 years, I just thought, this is it, and I'm not sure where else to go, and there was this lull after writing the book uh, that I thought, well, this this would not be uh, a bad uh, note to go out on. And I mentioned that to uh, someone who became a friend after the publication of the book, Barbara Kingsolver. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing an event together, and uh, I told her how I was feeling, and I thought maybe, you know, it was time for a new chapter, something that... Uh, you know, in in my final decades, might not involve writing. And she said, "Good luck." She <laughs> said, uh, "You are a writer, and writers write. And however you're feeling right now, you're going to be feeling differently in a handful of weeks." We define ourselves by writing. Writing helps us make sense of the world. You'll be back. And I'm embarrassed to say <laughs> that it may not even have been as many weeks as she <laughs> predicted. Uh, this book. Was actually a way of restoring myself after that period of exhaustion and consummation. It's very different. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, maybe a third of the length of the Overstory. In place of this enormous cast, uh, it's focused primarily on two people: a, a 39-year-old astrobiologist named Theo, and his nine-year-old intense, unusual boy, Robin. Uh, So in place of the large cast, it's really a kind of duet. Mm -hmm. There is a third person, Robin's mother, who died a couple of years before the start of the story. And the book is in some ways a ghost story. She haunts the pages of uh, of the book, both through Theo and through Robin's uh, imagination and memory. It is told entirely by Theo. It unfolds over the course of one year. And it was a little bit for me like writing a piano sonata after writing a symphony. The themes are similar, but the mode of expression was entirely different. And that decision to uh, constrain the canvas and to focus myself uh, and to uh, spend extended period of time with this pair of lost boys really was a way of reinventing myself and and re-inhabiting some of the themes of the larger book on a more personal level.
0: And it changed your writing habits didn't it when you moved into writing this book?
1: Yeah indeed my writing habits started to change halfway through writing The Overstory. I did a tremendous amount of research about trees uh, in North America and worldwide. Uh, for the Overstory. I was trying to draw on every myth and legend and scientific fact that I could determine about trees, this enormously diverse um, super family of organisms that have come up with so many ingenious ways of solving the problems of being alive. As I was doing this reading, I ended up reading over 120 book-length studies of trees uh, to, to research this book, but I I kept reading, A, about how little old growth forest there is left on the continent of North America. In the United States, something between two and five percent of the original forests that covered the United States remain in an uncut form. That astonished me just in itself, to understand that everything that I had ever seen and thought was a forest was actually just a recovering forest. Mm -hmm. Second growth, uh, you know, 100 years or less and that there were only these small pockets of primary forest remaining. And I kept hearing that if you wanted to see primary forest, uh, eastern broadleaf deciduous forest, that the best place to go was the Smoky Mountains uh, down in southern Appalachia, so Tennessee, North Carolina. that the largest contiguous chunks of old growth forest uh, were down there in these these mountains, uh, maybe 120,000 acres of forest. So not much, but uh, a a huge fraction of what remains. I went down there just as a research trip. And just, I was was writing, I needed to see what a primary forest looked like. I booked three days to go down there. And as I hiked up from the recovering forest into the primary forest, there was a a distinct threshold,
0: mm-hmm.
1: almost from one step on the trail to the next, where it was. I've I compared it to The Wizard of Oz when the film goes from black and white to color. You know, the the smell was different, the sound was different, uh, uh, the light was different. Uh, it was obvious that there was a much higher species count. Uh, the the whole look of the forest. Uh, was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it shocked me because I'm an Easterner. I thought I knew what an Eastern, broadleaf forest looked like. And suddenly here I was in this place realizing I'd never seen a healthy, fully functioning Eastern forest before. And this is my patrimony. This is is what the, the half of the continent looked like before Europeans got to it. I was still thinking about that three-day excursion eight months later, and it was obsessing me and I thought, well, that's got to tell you something, and I decided to go back and buy a house and I've been living there ever since, that was five years ago. Uh, And since moving to the Smokies, it's really the first time that I can say that I have actually lived where I live, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that is to say where I felt that part of what I was doing every day was trying to return to place to figure out what that place could and wanted to do, what the agency and affordances of this place were, what the native species are. The Smokies are extraordinary. It is one of the most biodiverse places on earth outside the tropics. And I learned something almost every day about this incredible diversity of life. I went there for the trees. There are more species of trees in this half a million acre national park in my backyard than there are in all of Europe from Portugal to Russia. And that in itself was worth moving across the mm-hmm. continent for. Uh, I came for the trees. I stayed for the fungus and the invertebrates and the mammals. and. Uh, the flowers, uh, and the difference in my life in my work patterns since moving to the Smokies is really quite dramatic. For most of my life, I thought of my work first. I thought that my productivity, the products that I was making with these books, was the thing that organized me and my purpose, my, m- my meaning. I would wake up in the morning and write my thousand words, yeah, I would stay chained. To my work area until those thousand words were done and then the rest of the day was mine to do as I wished. Since moving to the Smokies, that relationship between work and place has reversed. I now wake up and say, what's happening outside? You know, I look out the window, I walk out onto the deck, I see what the weather is, I think about what the season is, what's in bloom, what's in fruit, what's in flower where the animals will be, what elevation they'll be at, uh, and where would be the most interesting place to be on this day. Mm. And if the weather permits and the season permits, I will go outside first because living where I live, making this connection to the more than human all around me, was the work, not making the books. So. Uh, that the being out, seeing what there is to see, uh, is now the organizing principle of my mornings. I will say, uh, to be honest, that I often don't have to hike very far before characters and scenes and ideas and sentences do begin to to occur to me, because Barbara Kingsolver is right. Uh, Writers do organize the world through words. Uh, and oftentimes, if I'm a ways down the trail and the ideas start to accumulate and it's too much to hold in my memory, I will <laughs> rush back to the trailhead in order to get it all down and to, uh, to get going on all the ideas that have been unleashed. But the important thing is the ideas are coming from the place and from the more than human, from my being among the neighbors.
0: Can you say more about the more f- more than human? Because obviously one of the things about the overstory is this feeling that, you give the trees a life. It's just because yeah. they're on a different yeah. time scale from yeah. us that we can't see that actually they live exactly like we do. Yeah. Um, and they reproduce and they die and they're born and they have different seasons and they yeah. help each other. Was there a moment that you realized that?
1: The moment that I began to understand that was when I was teaching at Stanford in Northern California and hiking up in the Santa Cruz mountains in the recovering redwood forests. And even a recovering redwood, you know, even a redwood that's only been around for 100 years is an astonishing tree. I mean, they Mm. can do Mm. a lot in a century. (laughs) But I was hiking one day up in in the mountains that had been largely logged to build San Francisco and to build Silicon Valley and to build the railroads that connected uh, the country east to west. And I came across an escapee, a tree that somehow for whatever historical reasons hadn't been logged. And this tree was a monster. And it was as wide as a house. Mm. It was as tall as a football pitch as long. And by my estimates, it was probably at least as old as Charlemagne, Mm. and maybe as old as Jesus. Uh, And even for a somewhat uh, colonized human-centric novelist as I had been up to that point, it was impossible not to look at this thing and say, I've missed most of the story. The agency of life, what life wants to do, what life is capable of doing, goes so far beyond the human story, both in time frame and in potential, that it was undeniable for me that I needed to try to learn how to tell a different kind of story. I needed to try to put myself on the time frame of trees. I needed to start understanding that we are here by virtue of them and not you know they are not here to be our resources and it, that's where this journey of trying to tell a different kind of story trying to bring the more than human in back into the story and to give uh, uh, them agency and to make our story actually not this exclusive separate thing but to tell the story of people as if they are just one of many, many kinds of agents, which we are. And indigenous cultures do see that entirely. Absolutely. Where do you think we lost it? Well, see, that's it. I mean, what I was doing was no new thing. Most of human literature, for most of human history, in most of the area of of the globe, knew that if you wanted to talk about us, you had to bring the neighbors in, Mm. and you had to bring place in. It's a great expression, bring the neighbors in like that. To, to pretend that they weren't there, to pretend that we're the only game in town was ridiculous. I, you know, for us, you know, it's, it's clearly this, this alienation from place and from other kinds of life, from, from the earth as a living interdependent thing, is a western alienation. And it is a young alienation. It, it, it came about only recently, probably only in the last two centuries or so. If you look back to literature of the mid-19th century in England or in the United States or on the continent, there are still vestiges of this understanding that human relationship to the non-human is part of our drama, part of the the stories that we want to tell. But see, once our technologies became capable enough and powerful enough, once the seduction uh, began to set in, that we could somehow master time and space and place and the vicissitudes of trying to get along with other forms of life. Once, once we thought we now have the tools to go it alone, mm-hmm. then our stories changed. Yeah. And that, that kind of drama, humans in the environment trying to understand and fit in, in a world that is indifferent to how we would like it to be, uh, sometimes hostile to how we would like it to be, that drama disappeared. We thought we'd won that war. We thought that was over and now we could concentrate on just the difference in values between you and me, the difference in values inside myself. And so this broader adventure of humans on earth shrunk down to this simpler and and, and more focused adventure of how to govern our own psychologies. That is an interesting story, how to govern our own psychologies. But it means nothing if it doesn't connect outward into these other larger dramas.
0: So do you see yourself as an activist in your writing? I mean, thinking of people, you know, certainly in the overstory, you have people protesting and trying to save the trees. Is that you?
1: If, If we mean by activist, taking action, doing things, making art, that, will work toward transforming people's understanding of themselves and where they are, then yeah, I, I wear that label proudly. Um, um, the thing is, this kind of literature, this kind of bell lettristic high literature that, that we're talking about, this recent invention uh, in the West, would look down on that word a little bit. You know, there there is a sense in which the aesthetic that we've become really expert at uh, wants to remove the moral urgency of the author mm-hmm. and, and wants to tell stories where morality is fluid, everyone is both a hero and a villain. Uh, it, it's, it's improper somehow to guide the story towards some uh, larger revelation. Or towards some moral certainty. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I think this culture of human exceptionalism, this culture of commodity mediated meaning has forgotten that there are other places to locate purpose. See, we've put it entirely inside each individual. Mm -hmm. You know, this this kind of more or less neoliberal culture that we've arrived at and that we think of as sort of the inevitable arrival point of history places meaning inside each individual. Say, you invent it for yourself, by yourself, do the best you can, go, go forward, grow, accumulate, uh, make meaning wherever you find it possible. And our stories are simply about people trying to do that as they collide against other people who are trying to do it in different ways. But what if mm-hmm. you know, we went back to these other ways of understanding purpose, where we migrate meaning out of individuals into this larger drama out there. You know, what if we began to tell stories again where purpose consists of finding, each individual finding the reciprocal interdependence, the interbeing of creation and remembering how this astonishing unfolding of life on this planet is what it is by virtue of all the other living things around it. That's what, that's how we evolved. We did not evolve as some separate thing with agency where nothing else had purpose or agency. We devolved, we evolved in the middle of all these other creatures also finding meaning and purpose in figuring out how to survive the world.
0: So when bewilderment gets badged as a science fiction, which I saw Mm -hmm. that it did. I mean, I only saw this in The Guardian. It may be true in Mm -hmm. other places. It made me really sad because when one thinks of science fiction, you think of it as being something that isn't already happening around you and and real. Mm -hmm. And I think that as readers and as people, we approach science fiction a different way. And it seems to me a, a big failing that we don't somehow absorb a book like that as just a story that is real Mm -hmm. and that you have a really nice line about um, life is something we need to stop Mm -hmm. correcting Mm -hmm. about Robin Mm -hmm. and I thought that that the whole of that book kind of is is summed up in that that title Mm -hmm. that you know it's about letting go not not wanting to take part not wanting to cut down the trees and all those things but when it gets pushed away from you by the science fiction label does Mm -hmm. that upset you?
1: Well yes and no I mean I'd like to point out that while literary fiction was establishing itself as a kind of top dog, and denigrating other genres, sometimes looking askance at science fiction because it wasn't psychologically sophisticated, that it was dealing with ideas and philosophy and these other things that literary fiction f- could sometimes think of as crude, that in fact science fiction was n- had never left these kind of essential questions about Mm -hmm. human relations to the non-human that literary fiction is now learning to recover. So I don't necessarily think of being labeled as science fiction or speculative fiction as a demotion, but I understand what you're saying too, that if it takes away from the idea that this is actually also a psychologically realistic novel, and intent upon describing, in as rich a way possible, the love for this father, for his son, the love for his son, the son uh, for his vanished mother, the love of these two lost boys for the world around them. Yes, it would be a shame to think of this as somehow... uh, Unreal. Yes, yes, belonging to some speculative venture that wasn't the life that we lead and that we need to figure out how to lead. What I've done in this book is to create a a subtle and slow kind of hybridizing of the passionate novel of character, of psychological realism, with the novel of speculation. Uh, The novel that looks outward to other places to re-examine what the earth is and to know, to um, get the largest picture of who we are and what life might be capable of. So it, it is the story of a father and son. The father happens to be an astrobiologist. Mm-hmm. One of the very few things that the son responds to that can calm him down and give him a sense of excitement and well-being are the stories that his father tells him about these other planets and the two of them journey together across the galaxy to very different kinds of places, and in their act of shared imagination uh, speculate about what life might do in these very different places. There's another way in which this book is a little bit counterfactual. The reader will start it thinking, I know where we are. (laughs) We're in 2019 America. We're in the last years of the Trump administration. In fact, this president, uh, this autocratic president who keeps intruding with his tweets, uh, you know, and these other characters that pop up, this, this uh, uh, Scandinavian girl activist in Pigtails, we know who that is, you know. But the farther the reader gets in this story, the more that one-to-one mapping with the world that we've just lived through becomes problematic because the story is what science fiction would call a near-future hypothetical. Uh, um, In this case, actually, near-present hypothetical. It's recognizable, but it doesn't correspond directly to the world that we've actually lived through. And so I remove all the possible ways of saying, yes, I know that time, I know that place. And I want to return the reader in a way that uncertain relationship, to that estranged, uh, terrified, and slightly, you know, panicky sense of not being able to say where the story is going to go, that we all felt mm-hmm. in 2018 and 2019. I wrote the book Under Lockdown. Uh, I finished it just before the elections. No. I turned in my final, final draft in October of 2020, and so I speculate about uh, the elections and where they could have gone, and where uh, Trump was laying the groundwork to take them. And I wanted the reader to feel that same completely bewildered and upended and uncertain relationship to these unfolding events that I felt at that moment. I didn't know whether I would finish my book first or whether Democracy in America would end up, you know, finishing itself before I got there. And that's that sense of precariousness that the science fiction element of the book allows me to re, reintroduce.
0: Can we stick with the science, f- the, the quote, science fiction mm. element? I mean, you do fantastic scientific research, as is clear in all your books, particularly in the trees. But in, in this bewilderment, the information about the planets, m- how much of that is from your head? How much of that is from mm. genuine scientists like that? And also the whole thing about how. Robin gets to have his communications with his mother.
1: Every planet that Robin and Theo visit uh, uh, as they make this intergalactic journey of the imagination is actually based on categories of exoplanets that have recently been discovered. Uh, everything is drawn from Theo's uh, nascent field of astrobiology. It's interesting you know, to, to, to point out that this discipline of astrobiology didn't even exist when I was Theo's age. (laughs) And when I was Theo's age, there were no known planets outside the solar system. All of this is brand new, and it's completely changing what science thinks about the potentials of life, where life might exist, how easy it might be to come about. So in one sense, the science is rigorous, I, I did immerse myself in the bibliography of astrobiology. Because it's a young discipline, I didn't have to read quite as many books for for that, to to try to get a grounding in that field than I did to have to read for uh, a grounding in the world of trees. Uh, But the excitement of this infant field, I think, I, I, I immersed myself deeply enough to feel that and to try to find a way of dramatizing it through Theo's urgency and through Robin's excitement.
0: Why is it important that we know about this life on other planets?
1: Well, who are we? Where are we going? How likely or unlikely are we? Um, Are we a fluke? Or does the universe want things like us? Uh, That's the question that astrobiology asks. It's not just about life on other planets. It's about All of the potentials and affordances and possibilities of life itself. What is biology? Does it grow inevitably out of physics and chemistry Mm -hmm. or are we in the middle of this absolutely fluke one-off thing? Knowing the answer about that will change the stories that we tell about ourselves. I mean we've been telling some stories, some of them useful, some of them very pernicious about how special we may or may not be. And a lot of this culture of human exceptionalism that we were talking about before has come about because we don't know what's happening out there. Because we think we're unique? God made us in his image, right? (laughs) That's the the story that is foundational in our culture, Mm -hmm. right? go forth, be fruitful, and multiply, and have dominion, and subdue the earth. These are the stories that we have to find some way of countering and enlarging. And science is one truly wonderful way of getting a new family image. Have we got time to get a new family image? That is the question. Yeah. I I mean, mean, uh, in
0: a way, you've, you've proposed us a family image, which incorporates the trees is our family yeah. just as much as yeah. the cat next door is yeah. our family Absolutely. so now you're putting on top of it a sense that we have to find our family within the universe does that not just push further away the problems that we are creating
1: well part of finding our family in the universe part of this voyage of imagination that Theo and Robin embark on is about coming back and landing on earth it's about saying there is alien life and it's everywhere it's all around us and it's stranger and more intelligent and more full of potential than we ever imagined we just have to stand still and attend to it and watch it and remember it and learn it again that's what looking outward can do it can cause us to look back around at all these things that we've taken for granted
0: What do you feel about someone like Jeff Bezos whizzing off to space (laughs) and thinking might, you know, we can trash this house and go and get another one? Yeah,
1: that's not the right story. (laughs) (laughs) And if if a fraction of the money that these billionaires are spending on vanity projects could be given to this other project of actually becoming subtler in looking for and finding the fingerprints of life out there, uh, it might ignite the imagination of people in mm-hmm. a way. Imagination of people in a way that uh, uh, private uh, vanity ventures into space. I don't think possibly can.
0: When we, when you learn or read about people um, learning about very deep sea, mm-hmm. that has
1: a similar feeling. You know, I- interestingly, discovering exoplanets and uh, the, the range of conditions that exoplanets present has made earthbound field studies more subtle and more uh, attuned to the possibility of finding life in places that we thought it could mm-hmm. never exist. In the, the huge expansion of our understanding of extremophiles, mm-hmm. microbes that survive in conditions that my science teachers in college would have said life could not possibly mm-hmm. survive, have, have come about in conjunction with looking for life elsewhere to look for life in deep ocean vents, to look for life in extremes of hot and cold, uh, in the absence of all the chemistry that we think life needs. Life that does not come from the sun. Yes. All of these are new, and they they are challenging and changing the story that we're telling about ourselves.
0: Where do you see that happening, apart from in the hands of someone like you or Kim Stanley Robinson Mm. or people like that? How can we move that story out? I mean, I read it the other day about uh, something in very deep ocean that survived without oxygen, had a whole other way of living. And you think, my God, you know, everything I've ever been taught is turned upside down at this point. I don't know.
1: I completely don't know. uh, Alongside that sense of bewilderment at not knowing, didn't you also feel how astonishing? Yeah,
0: no, fantastic. I want to know about it. And, and
1: the, p- the project of life is so much more resourceful and capable than I thought it was. You see, the real question is, can we have hope? I mean, right now we're on the brink of calamities that are overwhelming. The climate catastrophe, the species extinction catastrophe, everyone's panicked, and most of all children. Robin is an unusual yeah. boy, but he's absolutely representative of young children in feeling despair and feeling terror and fear, what, what the adults are allowing to happen to the earth, to the, to the living earth. Our terror is, in, sense, in a sense, driven by our fear that everything is going to be lost. Mm. A better understanding of the resilience and ingenuity and expansive capacities of life Could at least uh, give us a bedrock for understanding that when we unite our meaning with the meaning of this larger experiment, we don't have to be panicked about the current human world going away. See, there will be a future. Life will survive everything that we throw at it. I think we will even be around for a lot longer. We won't be in our current state. When we can find meaning in rehabilitating, in rejoining, in taking daily pleasure at all of the potentials and affordances of life, we have our work, we have our future. If you define hope as the commitment to remain engaged with the future, Mm -hmm. there's endless hope because there's endless work and there's endless purpose. that goes way beyond the way we define it now.
0: Do you think that we have the tools at the moment to convey that to the Robins of this world? The tools will
1: not be scientific papers. Mm. Not primarily. There is a line in Overstory, all the best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that will do that is a good story. What we need is for our artists and our storytellers to take up this task of landing back on Earth.
0: But it would seem to me um, that certainly in the, the education system we have here in the UK, mm. and maybe this is true in America, that the last thing actually people get taught is about imagination. Mm. We're tremendously spoon-fed, mm. and in fact that's that suits governments, to have people mm. spoon-fed and not feel they have agency mm-hmm. and power. How do you see you can restore that? How do we get this? It sort of comes back to my question about the science fiction, because right. I want the books to be real you know this is the real stuff that's happening and these are the stories we can't do it I mean I completely agree with you we cannot do it without
1: stories. So if education is failing us if education is reinforcing this sense of commodity driven meaning and teaching us how to be good consumers and good producers inside that kind of human exceptionalist and neoliberal world we have to subvert it from all other quarters. We have to do it as parents. We have to do it as artists. We have to do it in all the, the, uh, the venues of life where we learn how to understand and make stories, right? And that accumulated shift in consciousness, what Robin Wall Kimmerer calls becoming indigenous again, mm-hmm. right? can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to happen in the schools. It would be wonderful if, it, if the schools did start to twig it and start you know, <laughs> pushing in the right direction. But it's contagious really, you see. Once once a lot of people start living where they live, once a lot of people start seeing meaning out there, others see that they're at peace and they're actually uh, less anxious and more motivated than all of the, the we frightened people who are still trying to hold on to the old style of accumulating meaning, um, personal meaning. um, That's how it's going to go. That's how other cultural revolutions have gone, right? I mean, when you when you look at the social transformations of the last half century or century and all of these things uh, that would have been hard to predict or or, or you would have thought would never happen, there's a threshold, a fairly low threshold, Once a certain number of people are saying, we need to think about this in a new way, almost overnight, the mainstream can pick up on that. And it's contagious. And we go, like as we did with LGBT, Mm -hmm. you know, where 20 years ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said, same sex marriage in the United States, don't hold your breath. And now, because of art, because of stories, because of theater, because of movies, because of books, this very conservative culture of mine said, what, we were, what were we thinking? Of course.
0: But also they were very clever about the same sex marriage mm-hmm. because there was a six year campaign by a yes. behavior change yes. which said, what's the thing we want to make out of this? And they said, everyone in America has a right to family life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about my rights mm-hmm. to sex or my rights to whatever I want to do, which might offend someone else. It was the rights to family life. And it was finding that story out of all the yes. other things you could have been asking for. yes, And it was a squillion dollar campaign, and it worked.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. And you
0: kind of think, what is the same moment that we can activate yeah. how here? To
1: do it th- how to do it in this other question of rejoining the neighbors. That campaign was an exercise in empathy building. Yes, It was taking an old story and saying, we want that story too. If you want that story, see how we want it, right? And that's empathy. When you can put yourself in the subject position of another person. Mm -hmm. This book is built around the plot device of an empathy machine, but of course the real empathy machines are all these techniques that we use to ask a person for a moment, what would it be like to see things from over there, or how would it feel to be that person? Those are the, those are the uh, processes and the arts and the stories that we need to learn how to develop.
0: What do you think about the coming climate talks?
1: Well COP26, there have been 25 before it, Yes. (laughs) and there will be a number after it. Each one does make the program and the uh, agreed upon uh, statement stronger, more urgent, more dire, political will doesn't seem to be shifting that much. I think exciting things will happen at the conference, not only by the conference participants, but lots of artists and and, uh, public that have gathered around it and are using that summit uh, to to produce empathy machines of their own. I think that the messages that are coming out of these summits are filtering into the mainstream, as are the endless uh, headlines uh, that have repositioned uh, the climate crisis uh, from some story about the future, our children's world, to right now. And I think as ordinary mainstream people begin to understand the changing world is here, their consciousness will change, and the politicians who of course just have their finger in the wind and are seeing which you know, what will play in the greater public will start to read the stories that are percolating up from people at large. There will be very, very useful things that come out of the summit, but it's going to have to be the artists and the storytellers and the public at large, using these things not just as tables and figures and abstract arguments, uh, but as art and empathy yeah. and exchange, uh, where th- where the change will happen.
0: And um, the Pope, in the last few days, has issued this extraordinary long mm-hmm. statement about. Um, well, he's, he 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 issued what the encyclical before, but about the need to protect the planet. How influential do you see someone like that? You you yourself, are you a Buddhist? Your brother is?
1: My my brother w- was ordained as a Buddhist monk when I lived in Thailand. I lived for many years in a Buddhist country. As I wrote this book, uh, when I went back to revise it, I was surprised at how much Buddhism there is in the book. And I was realizing that I was channeling my own childhood relationship with that religion and, and the culture of a country that I was living in. Uh, How much a role can religion play in this shift in consciousness? I think is the the broader question that we need. There are ways, we talked about them earlier, in which the Judeo-Christian tradition has not been attuned to interbeing, to the interdependence of living things. And it is heartening to see modern-day Christianity begin to rethink what that tradition can, how, how that tradition can position itself with regard to the relationship between the human and the more than human. In general, religion, I mean when you think about the word itself, the etymology, the Latin behind, underneath this re-ligio, it means to tie back together. Mm-hmm. That's what we need. We need those elements of all the world's great religions that's that try to tie us back together with the living planet. And religion does does change hearts and minds. Uh, if if our stories can help to change the way that those religious messages are, are promulgated, I'm all for it.
0: Okay, well I think we've probably come up to time now. Um, I'm incredibly grateful to you. It's wonderful to meet you. And thank you so much for being you, writing these extraordinary books, and have you started on another one?
1: I have. Jolly I have. Good. I've, I've, I've put it aside for a bit to do the, the book tour, but it's waiting for me back in the smokies when the Any clues? Uh, it's, it's evolving. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: on that note, thank you, and we can't
1: wait to read it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great thank pleasure you. talking thank you. to you.